Amen. There's this old uh, Isaac Watts hymn. It says, I love the windows of thy grace through which my Lord is seen and long to meet my Savior's face without a glass between. And uh, this morning has been the morning of technical difficulties and I'm longing for the day when the flock won't be scattered but gathered around the throne of the Lamb without a glass between. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to first uh, to Second Peter. Excuse me, it's just habit. Second Peter, chapter one. If you're looking in the pew Bible, you should find it on page twelve ninety eight. I'm not a big fan of of horror movies. Never have been. Probably never will be. If you like them, I'm happy for you, but uh, they just don't spark joy for me. Um, I am familiar, however, with a, a trope that's sometimes found in horror movies, uh, and, and it's, it can be summarized by saying that the call is coming from inside the house. Maybe you've seen something like that. It's this, this point in the story when the protagonist realizes that whatever danger they are facing is much closer than they thought. It's not out there, but it's already inside. If I had to come up with a uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek summary for the book of 2 Peter, uh, I might say that the call is coming from inside the house. Uh, We wrapped up our journey through 1 Peter two weeks ago, and that letter was primarily concerned with the pressures that Christians face from the outside, from from unbelievers. Uh, Peter wanted to prepare us for the expectation that If we are faithful to the chief shepherd, Jesus, we will encounter hardship, ridicule, even persecution. All these various trials that come to us from the outside that would tempt us to to turn aside from the way of faithfulness. By the time that Peter sits down to write this second letter, this danger from the outside is still very real and even growing. And in fact... As you read through the letter, you can hear that Peter senses that his own life is very near its end. But the external pressure is not his only concern. In this letter, he is also sounding the alarm about impurity within the church, whether it is impurity of of doctrine or of practice. And so internal impurity is just as much a threat to the health of the church as any pressure from the outside. So the call is coming from inside the house. So we have to be vigilant and we have to be diligent to cling to the gospel both in belief and in practice. So I want us to read together here in 2 Peter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, 
and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we trust and affirm what you have said in your word, that your divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, whether we are gathered in this room or wherever, whoever's hearing my voice may be right now, that you would confirm to us the truthfulness and authority and sufficiency of what you have said in your word. And Lord, that we would not look to any place else, to any other authority, because there is no authority higher than you. And there is no truth greater than you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves under this word and that you, by your spirit, would make us diligent to pursue what you have called us to do and to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the most fundamental principles for understanding any New Testament letter, this is just anytime you're reading a letter like 2 Peter, you should always be asking yourself this question. What is the situation that the human author was seeking to address. They, they are speaking to specific situations, and that's important to, for helping us understand. Just in the same way that, that if, if I were to sit down and write a formal letter to a, a senator or a congressman, I would probably speak in a different way than if I just scribbled a note down to Rebecca or if I sent her a text or something like that. And so the, the context matters and the situation matters. And so if you want to understand, in this case, Second Peter, it's helpful to pay attention to what was he seeking to accomplish under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times it's, it's not all that difficult to, to discern this if you just sort of pay attention to what he says. And so I want us to sort of, we're going to cheat a little bit, and I want us to flip over a page or two uh, to Second Peter chapter 3. And I want you to hear exactly what Peter says his purpose was in writing this letter because it's going to help us make sense of what he says in chapter 1. So notice what Peter says in, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So we read First Peter. We walked through that one. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So, First Peter, 
was primarily about him stirring us up. He is, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he says both of these letters are meant to agitate. Holy agitation. He's agitating us, stirring us up by way of reminder about, in 1 Peter, about the pressures that were coming to us from the outside. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be sober-minded about those things. And in the second letter, he's stirring us up, agitating us to be alert to the scoffers that arise. That's the word he uses. And these scoffers call into question what God has said in his word. They say, where is the promise of his coming? Now notice what they say in verse 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what what you can hear there is that these are people who are not unbelievers. These are not outsiders. These are people inside the church. And Peter makes that clear elsewhere in the letter, especially in chapter uh, 2. In chapter 2, he calls them false teachers and says that they arise from within. And Now, here's the thing. Whether it's pressure from the outside or impurity on the inside, the temptation in both cases is for genuine sheep to turn away either from the truth that we have received or from the holiness to which we have been called. And Peter makes it very clear that what these false teachers do is, is both. They sow doubt about the truth, right? In verse 4, they say, where is the promise of His coming? So what these people were saying is, you know, Peter said in his last letter, the end of all things is at hand, but the years keep ticking away and the end never, never happens. Maybe, maybe it's not ever going to happen. And so if that's the case, then there's not ever going to be any kind of judgment. All that stuff that they talk about, about we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat and we're going to have to give an account and everything that's hidden is going to be revealed. I don't really know if that's going to happen. I mean, for all of history, things have just kind of been going on as they are. God doesn't seem to be intervening in any way. And so that's the case. Why don't we just kind of do what we want to do? So there is a, a truth component, but there's also a moral component. He says in verse 3 that they follow their own sinful desires. It's not easy to tell which one's the cart and which is the horse. Do they say, we, want, we have these sinful desires, and so in order to justify them, we'll tell people that Jesus is not coming back, there's not going to be any kind of judgment. Or do they start with the fact that uh, it doesn't look like the end is ever going to happen, so we might as well just do what we want, right? Either way, the end result's the same. They're denying the truth. They're sowing doubt about what the apostles had taught, what Jesus had taught, and they were leading people into open sin. He says of them in chapter 2, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. So as we head back to chapter 1, I want us to see how even though Peter is yet to mention these false teachers in this opening passage, he's already urging us to do two things. He's urging us to cling to the truth and to pursue godliness. And we're going to take each one of those uh, in turn one at a time. So the first thing that I want us to see Peter urge to do is, is cling to the truth. Cling to the truth. He opens this letter by calling himself a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And if you were to compare 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 with 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, you would find that uh, in 1 Peter he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here he adds this title, a servant. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word servant or, or slave, it's obviously a sign of, of, of humility. He's, he's effectively saying, you know, I'm not here to, to be a different Messiah. I'm not here to stand in His place. I'm, I'm here as His servant to do what He has told me to do. But I also want to remind you that, especially in the Old Testament, those who bore the Word of God to the people of God were often called servants of the Lord. Moses was called the Lord's servant. Over and over, God refers to him as my servant Moses. He calls Abraham my servant Abraham. David is called the servant of the Lord. The prophets were called servants of the Lord. And of course, Jesus was called the servant of the Lord. So when you put the word servant next to the word apostle, which is this word that means that Peter is a messenger who has been appointed by Jesus himself. He is coming to us under his authority. Then when you put those two words together, there's a sense that Peter is not just writing to us and saying, hey, I've got some ideas, you know, these are some things that I've been thinking about. He is, he is signaling to us that what I am saying to you, I am saying not as an average Joe, not really so much as your peer, but I'm saying these things to you as one who is writing with the authority of Jesus and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so it is incumbent upon us to, to listen to what he says. And yet at the same time, notice how he addresses his readers. This is in the middle of verse 1. He says, "...to those who have, obtained, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God." And Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter was a part of this unique group of witnesses who saw and heard and touched Jesus and who had been appointed by him to testify under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter said in Acts 10, listen, the way that Jesus operates is not that he has, he has revealed himself to everybody. He did not appear to everyone, but he appeared to us whom he appointed as witnesses that we may Proclaim and write down the things that we have seen and heard so that you may hear them as well. And so he, he, he writes as one who has this authority, who, who is unique, and yet he writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He's saying, in, in the sense that I'm writing this letter to you, I'm not your peer. I'm speaking with the authority of Jesus. But when it comes to our standing before Jesus, you and I are on equal footing. You have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, and this happens only by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me just pause there and say, if you ever hear someone say, you know, the New Testament never claims that Jesus is God, they probably haven't read the New Testament very carefully. There it is right there in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was free. You don't have to pay extra for that little tidbit. Um, so already in the first verse, right, we're reminded that our job is not to innovate truth. None of us can stand up and say, thus says the Lord, unless we're reading from the Bible. I, I can't stand up and say, you know, close my Bible and say, thus says the Lord, and then say something unless I'm reciting Scripture to you. Our and, yet, and yet, our uh, standing before God is on the basis of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And as Peter adds in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace come to us through the truth of the gospel. We must cling to that truth. We must hold fast to it. And the truth that God has revealed is, is sufficient. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. A few words here that are so important, I want to make sure that we don't confuse them in any way. First, when Peter speaks there of life, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to Life. He's using a word there that does not refer to biological life. It refers to spiritual life, eternal life. So God's power has granted to us everything we need in order to be saved, to have life in Jesus' name. That's the first word I want to clarify. The second word I want to clarify is the word knowledge. When he says, through the knowledge of Him, that word has, has a double meaning. So there is... There is an objective knowledge, knowledge about the facts of the gospel, about the character of God, that sort of thing. So when he says, through the knowledge of Him, he means through knowing about God's character. But there's also a subjective knowledge. It's not just knowing about God, but it's knowing Him in a personal way, having a relationship with Him. So His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to eternal life and godliness, through knowing about God's character and knowing Him in a personal way. And then the third word I want to clarify is the word called, because I don't have any scientific data on this, but just personal experience, we tend to use the word called way more frequently in in ways that the, the Bible doesn't use it. So when he says, "...through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence," Peter is not describing vocation, um, one's calling in life, nor is he merely describing God's invitation to believe the gospel. So Peter said back in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that God has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's a, a phrase that is meant to evoke a thought in our mind of Genesis 1, where God looks upon nothing and says, let there be light. There was not light. God was not speaking to light and inviting it to begin shining. He spoke and His call created the thing that He called. He created the light by calling it and saying, let there be light. And so in a similar way, Paul uses this word this way and Peter does as well. When he says that... uh, that God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's using that, that phrase to say that God has called you out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And He does that, of course, through an external invitation where someone proclaims the gospel and they invite you to respond to it. But along with that external call, there is this powerful internal work of the Holy Spirit that God does through the preaching of the gospel where God works in someone's heart to awaken faith in them and to create life in them. 
So the point is that God, by His omnipotent power, has already granted to us everything we need to have eternal life and to be godly. Everything we need to have a saving relationship with Him and to please Him. And we have all that through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So when Peter says that, he blows right past God calling us to salvation. And he goes straight to the fact that He has called us to His own glory and excellence. That's the same thing Paul does in Romans 8, right? Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. He has called you not just to be justified, but to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And in, he, in this way, Peter says that He has called us to His own glory and excellence. So if you've been called to eternal life, you've been called to godliness. And not only that, not only has He called us to eternal life and to godliness, He has also, according to verse 4, granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That verse should be enough to clarify that when He says He's called us to His own glory and excellence, it doesn't just mean that He is summoning us to those things, but that He has promised us that they will happen. Now, I want us to pay attention to that phrase, partakers of the divine nature, because some people have gotten way off track when they wrestle with what Peter means by that. Peter's not suggesting that we will become gods. Okay, He's just said that God has granted to us all things pertaining to to godliness, and that He has called us to His own glory and excellence. And I want you to pay attention to the word excellence in verse 3. And now notice the word virtue in verse 5, where he says, For this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. The word excellence in verse 3 and the word virtue in verse 5, they're the exact same word. Translated differently, same, same word. So when Peter says there that he has called us to his own glory and excellence and that he's granted us his, great, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, he's not saying that the part of the divine nature that which we're going to partake is God's omnipotence or his omniscience or his omnipresence or his any of those other um, Excellencies, but he's saying that we will partake of God's character, His virtue, His goodness, His holiness, that there are some of God's virtues which we can and will share by His grace through the power of the Spirit because of the precious and very great promises which He has granted to us. It's very similar to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.15 where he said, As He who called you is holy, you also be holy and all your conduct. Now, that does not mean, we, we kind of have to sort of always come back to this truth, that does not mean that we will embody God's character perfectly right now. When he says that uh, through them, through these precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, he doesn't mean that that means right now, today, you can expect to be perfectly holy as God is holy. The point is, he has promised us that one day we will and that He has already given us everything we need to have a relationship with Him right now by faith in Jesus, 
And He's given us everything we need to begin pursuing that character, that godliness, that holiness, even now. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We have the people of God in the church to encourage and to hold us accountable and to bring us back into line on occasion. These things are sufficient for us to persevere in life and in godliness. So this is the truth to which Peter is urging us to cling. But of course, that's not all that God has called us to do. It's not enough to to live a moral life while denying the truth of the gospel. We have to cling to the truth. But it's also not enough to believe all the right things uh, while living a lifestyle that is contrary to what we profess to believe. So God calls us to both. So in addition to clinging to the truth, Peter urges us to, second, pursue godliness. Cling to the truth, pursue godliness. I want you to look at how verse 5 begins. For this very reason. Because you have all you need for life and godliness, because God has promised that you will partake of His character, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, we could very easily spend an entire sermon on that list of virtues. At the beginning of this year, we had a whole sermon series on virtues of Christ. But uh, we're not going to do that today. I just want to make a couple of quick observations that that I think will kind of help us to sort of see the big picture here, Peter is, is using a literary device here, and, and the point is not that you should work your way through this list one virtue at a time. That's not what this is intended to communicate. It's not like he's saying, okay, start with faith, and then once you've mastered that, move to virtue. And once you've got that down, then go to knowledge. And once you've got all the knowledge, then start working on self-control and so on. That's, That's not what he's telling us to do. He's not saying master one and then work on the other. Or maybe once you get to, you know, 75% faith, then you can sort of start working on the next one. No, no, no. As a practical matter, if that's what we did... If we're honest with ourselves, we probably would never make it all the way to brotherly affection and love, would we? Right? If I said, well, I can't, I can't start working on self-control until after I've gotten through faith and virtue and knowledge, I would never, if I lived a, a thousand years, I would never make it to brotherly affection and love. So every follower of Jesus is called to pursue all of these virtues all the time. Again, that doesn't mean that we're ever going to perfect one of them on this side of heaven. But the point is, there's no room for someone to say, well, you know, I know I'm not very loving or compassionate, but that's because I'm really focusing right now on knowledge and self-control. I'm just really working on myself, making sure that I know all that I need to know. And then, you know, once I 
Once I get that, then I'll, I'll start working on being, you know, compassionate and loving. Or there, there's no room for someone to say, you know, I know I don't have any self-control when it comes to getting drunk or losing my temper or whatever, insert any sin. But, you know, at least I'm steadfast, right? I mean, at least I'm, I'm consistent. I have faith. No, pursuing godliness means pursuing all of these virtues, the more important thing to notice here is that there is more to godliness than having faith. We're certainly not saved by our efforts, but Peter tells us that because we know that His divine power has granted to us all things we need to, to, to have life and godliness, and because He has granted us His precious and very great promises that we will become partakers of His divine nature, for that reason, you're not saved by your efforts, but for that reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Godliness is necessary evidence that we have spiritual life. He adds in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities, the things he says in verses 5 through 7, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. All right, I want you to listen to me when I say this right now. There is a phrase that we need to eradicate from Christian vocabulary. I hear it too much. That's just the way I am. Or that's just the way he is or she is. We need to get rid of that phrase. As if the fact that I've been sinning a certain way for a very long time somehow gives me a pass to keep doing it. We should never be at ease with an aspect of our character that is not like Jesus. We would do better to say, that's the way I was, but I have been cleansed from my former sins, and that's not the way I'm called to be anymore. It might be the way you are, but it's not the way you're called to be in Christ. So if we're not bearing the fruit of things like self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love then we're not living as someone who's been cleansed from their former sins. The Reformers put it this way. They said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Or as James put it, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or as Peter puts it, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We need to make sure that our faith is not dead, that it is accompanied by works in keeping with repentance by evidence of God's grace and of the Holy Spirit in our lives. At the same time, we need what Douglas Moo calls a theology of progress. We need a, we need a theology of progress. Peter says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says right there in verse 8, that you're, you're never going to reach a point where you've sort of capped it off and you're like, well, I've maxed out virtue. I've maxed out self-control. I've maxed out brotherly love or any of those kind of things. The question is, are they present in some minuscule way and are they abounding in your life? So the question is not, am I perfect? But if these qualities are totally absent from your life 
And if you have no desire to grow in them, that's probably a sign that you may not have a living faith. So we need to have a theology of progress, not perfection, but progress, where I, I look at my life in, in honesty and examine myself and say, you know what, I am lacking in these things. I am lacking in, in virtue. I'm lacking in self-control. I'm lacking in steadfastness. I'm lacking in brotherly affection, whatever the case may be. But the question is, are they there and are they increasing? The application comes in verse 10 where he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Here's how I want to summarize the bottom line here in just a few simple words. Strive to show that you're saved. Strive to show that you're saved. It's not about striving to, to earn salvation, to, to, to obtain any favor with God. In fact, when Peter says in verse 1, to those who, obtain, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, the word obtained there is not a word that means that I have worked and earned it. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that means that it has come to me through no doing of my own. Almost, almost kind of like um, um, the, the, the analogy I thought of when I was reading that is, is Forrest Gump, you know, where he just kind of manages to wander into things, right? And it's just like, oh, well, there's Elvis. There's, you know, whatever, George Wallace or the Vietnam War, he just sort of manages to wander into things without really trying. That's almost kind of the, the idea there when he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. It's come to us through no doing of our own. So strive to show that you're, you're saved. Strive to show what is already present by the grace of God. Be all the more diligent to, to confirm your calling and election to confirm the fact that God has called you through no goodness of your own from darkness to light, from death to life. Now think about how that affects three different areas. First, it affects your own assurance before the Lord. Because if you're not striving to show that you're saved, then you're going to be lacking in assurance. You're going to be I mean, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to be saying, well, I don't, I don't know if I can have any assurance because there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of evidence of God's grace in my life. So there's confirm your calling and election, strive to show that you're saved for your own sake, for your own sense of assurance before the Lord. The second area is that, that this affects the health of the flock, of the church. If individual sheep are not striving to show that they're saved, then there's going to be conflict because there are going to be some, some sheep in the flock who are saying, this is the way of holiness. There are going to be other sheep in the flock who are saying, oh, I just kind of want to do my own thing here. So it, it inherently affects the health of the body, the health of the church. And then third, it affects our witness to unbelievers. Um, far, far more, I fear, uh, has, has gone wrong uh, has done damage to, to unbelievers far more than, than any worldly philosophies or anything like that is the hypocrisies of people who profess to follow Jesus. And so if I'm striving to show that I'm saved, that is 
that's not going to be any kind of guarantee that some unbeliever that I know is going to just fall on their knees and give their life to Christ. But it's, it ought to give me a, a more level hearing with them. And if I'm not doing that, then it may be that they don't want to hear anything I have to say. So we should be diligent to pursue godliness so that God's power and grace would be displayed in our lives for our own sake, for the sake of our assurance, for the sake of, of, of the flock, of the church of Jesus, for the sake of our witness to unbelievers, and all of that for the glory of God. So we all need to examine ourselves. Um, am I clinging to the truth? Am I pursuing godliness? Those are some questions that you have to deal with in your own heart before the Lord. And, and let me say, you can't hide your answers from Him. Uh, one day, everything secret will be made known. Right now, we all need to do some business with the Lord. So let's, uh, let's do that. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. And this is our opportunity to examine ourselves under the light of the Word of God, to allow His Word to shine in our hearts and show us the places where we are not being diligent to confirm our calling and election, to, uh, to pursue what He's called us to pursue and to cling to the truth that He has spoken to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we have been agitated by Your Word this morning. And I'm thankful for that. Lord, I've been stirred up this week as I've been wrestling with what you've said in your word. And I pray that those who are hearing my voice right now would be stirred up as I have. Lord, I have a desire, Lord, to, to honor you in, in the, the truth that I believe and that I profess and I have a desire to honor you in the way that I live. And Lord, I know that I fall short and that I uh, lack and that I stumble. And Lord, that I am stubborn and hard-hearted sometimes. But Lord, I'm thankful for your patience and for your grace. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, um, there would be a desire to, to increase in these qualities to which you've called us. There would be a desire in us to cling to the truth that you have proclaimed to us. And Spirit of God, I pray that right now, whether it's someone here or whether it's someone listening to my voice somewhere else, Lord, that you would stir in their hearts and stir in my heart, Lord, and draw every single one of us to, to run to Jesus, to turn away from our own wisdom, Lord, that we would not scoff at what you have said, that we would not... Uh, sear our consciences before you and harden our hearts before you, but Lord, that we would be responsive to what you have said to us. Spirit, would you do that? Please, we plead with you by your grace and for your glory, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.